Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this podcast, we're going to look at the Uretina Retinal Medicine Clinical Research Award, which has just opened up again for applications on the Uretina website. Uh, before we get into that, though, first, a reminder that on November 24th, we have a very special case club looking at the challenges of patient care in Asia. It's chaired by Wei Wen Chan of Singapore National University Hospital, Tarakarn Suji Rakul of the Faculty of Medicine, Ramathabodi Hospital, Mahadol University, Bangkok, Thailand, and Stephen Zhang of Columbia University in New York. To accommodate our international faculty and audience, this case club will run from 2 p.m. CET on the 24th of November, so different time than normal, and that to translate to 7 a.m. EST in the United States, 8 p.m. IST and 9 p.m. Singapore time. Registration for this case club about the challenges of IRD patient care in Asia are now open on the Uretina website. Now, as applications open again for the Uretina Retinal Medicine Clinical Research Award, we're joined by previous winners Camille Bone from the Netherlands and João Pedro Marquez from Portugal to see how the award has furthered their research and where they are in that process. First, though, uh, we're joined by the Uretina Executive Vice President, Dara Conlon, to talk about what the research award is about and all of the information that you might need to know if you're interested in applying. So Dara, what is this research award all about? The Uretina Retinal Medicine Clinical Research Award is an initiative for Uretina members. It's in its sixth year now. We introduced it back in, in 2018 to support independent clinical research in the field of retinal medicine. The, the program, it's open to clinicians or non-clinician researchers based in the EU and associated countries. There's a series of entry criteria which are outlined in detail on the website, but funding is open to a broad scope of projects. And you'll see actually from the past recipients of the award, the focus of the projects has been quite varied. How much is typically awarded to the successful applicants? So the the maximum budget that can be requested is 300,000 for up to two years. We had intended, when we introduced it, actually, we had intended to just fund one project per year, but we actually increased that because the standard of applications was so high that we increased the funding that we made available to it. So now, same criteria apply. It's up to 300 for, for up to two years, but we usually fund two or sometimes three projects per year. And so just explain to me how exactly these applications are judged. Sure. So it's it's a two-part application and review process. So the first part is the expression of interest stage. This is judged on two criteria. So what's taken into account here is the quality of the proposal and its clinical relevance. And it's the expression of interest applications that we've opened online now, which has a deadline of December 11th. Then the second part is the shortlist stage. So shortlisted applicants are judged on three criteria. So there's first of all the quality of research record of the principal applicant and that's that's commensurate with their career stage. The quality of the research proposal. um, So that would include novelty, feasibility and timeliness. And then the third 
criterion is medical significance and capacity for transfer to clinical practice. So just take me through the timeline, Dara, again, uh, when people apply and, and what the various stages are. So it's the expression of interests that have just opened this week online and they remain open until the 10th of December. Then a review process is underway. Um, it's February typically that we announce the successful expression of interests and they are then given about two months to prepare their full proposal. And then it is September this year. It's at the annual Congress that we actually announce the winners of, of the given year. So this year that will be Barcelona in September. And actually at our Congress, we also host a research award session. So we award the successful candidates and we also invite back past winners to present a progress update on their projects. Okay, well, thanks, Dara. So let's hear from the previous winners themselves. We're joined now by Camille Bone, who's from Amsterdam UMC in Netherlands, and João Pedro Marquez, who's from University of Coimbra in Portugal. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, João, because this is uh, fresh in your memory. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to apply for this award. Oh, hi, Jonathan. Thank, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here and discuss uh, our recent award. So... We've been uh, working on this project for quite some time. We have a lot of EYS, ICE patients in our ophthalmic genetics clinic. Um, we've conducted some research on this topic and we were trying to get some funding to start this new project involving prime editing for a specific mutation that is very prevalent in our country. And uh, we've, uh, we've received some, some money from local institutions but I mean, it, it was it was impossible to conduct this kind of research with just that, um, and so we had we were familiar with the Uretina uh, RMCR grants. Um, some people from our department had already received this grant in the past, and so we decided to apply, and that was pretty much it. So things got interesting. We were shortlisted to for the, there were six uh, candidates that were shortlisted and then three were selected to receive the grant and uh, our project one was, was one of the lucky ones. You must have a, a very clear vision, I suppose, of what you wanted to do to apply for this grant. What were you looking at uh, and why did you think you needed a lot of money to, to pursue? Because these grants are, they're significant. It's fantastic to, to, have, uh, to have been a recipient because it really gives you quite, quite a lot of scope. What made your project expensive and hard to do? So just, just to give you some rational here, so like, like I was telling you, um, EYS or ICE, it, it's a very prevalent gene in Portugal. So we have a lot of patients uh, affected um, with this uh, genetic condition. And what we, what we wanted to do was to correct uh, via prime editing one of the most common mutations that we have in this gene. And... Why not using an adeno-associated virus, for instance, like you have gene therapy for other, uh, for other uh, retina genes? Because eyes is a very large gene. It has a coding sequence of 10.6. Uh, so, so it's very, very large. So it doesn't fit a normal uh, adeno-associated virus. Hmm. It is a gene that we know that is expressed in the photoreceptors. It has uh, some role in retinal morphogenesis, in architecture and ciliary transport. And there's no, there's no model for eyes. There's no available treatment for eyes. And so we, we just 
thought that we have a window of opportunity here. We had some collaborators that had some experience in prime editing, Peter Quinn from the US, Columbia University. And so we discussed this internally and with Peter, and we decided to develop this prime editing approach to correct one of these prevalent defects in eyes. And basically, um, why do we need money? Because gene editing is not something that it's uh, around the corner. So you have to actually develop this, um, this primer. Uh, and the good thing about prime editing, this technique, is that uh, it enables very precise, very targeted editing without generating uh, double-stranded DNA breaks. So it's better than CRISPR-Cas9. It is actually uh, a very, very precise and efficient way of introducing uh, targeted DNA sequences. And we can change something as simple as uh, a base pair. So it's, wow. it's actually something that is very, very progressive. It's something that will probably be used in a lot of other conditions. And if we succeed, we may actually find uh, a therapeutic strategy for, for a, a genetic condition that will inevitably progress to blindness if nothing is done. Is this a, a, a basic research project or do you have clear plans for developing new tools and techniques that uh, the community then can then share to, to change day-to-day -day practice of, of, of how retina specialists deal with this particular condition? So at this early stage, it will be a basic research project. Yes. So we will, what we'll do is we'll try to develop this prime editing strategy to correct that specific uh, mutation. And then we will have some patient uh, fibroblasts where we will test the, the retinal organoid phenotype. And then we'll try to use the prime editing strategy to correct that phenotype. So uh, this will be 100% lab work. Then if we succeed in what we try to achieve, uh, we'll eventually move to a clinical trial involving real patients uh, and involving this specific therapy in a group of patients. But so far, it will be just a very basic research uh, project. Right. So you're looking for essentially proof of concept. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's a very early stage. I see you nodding along, Camille. This is your area, of course, as well. Uh, this is an exciting project. Do you see ways in which um, your work will overlap with Joao's in, in, in this regard? Well, there's a lot of uh, mutual benefit in, uh, in European groups working on this uh, together. And um, I think the prime editing approach that uh, Joao is pursuing is, is very interesting, especially for these large genes like EYS. And I think also the, using organoids, so cultured retina uh, cells, retinas actually that were derived from from actual patients' uh, stem cells, is extremely interesting. And we're also working on that. Um, one of the difficult things that we found out is that getting a clinical phenotype, so a clinical picture in such a, a cultured retina, is quite uh, challenging. Because you like it's like an embryonic cultured uh, retina. So I was wondering, Joao, did you already uh, do you already have this retinal organoid, or are you going to develop it, uh, hoping that it will develop a phenotype? Or because in, in our group, it it turned out to be quite challenging. Maybe I can say something about that later. But uh, I think it's very promising, but also very challenging. 
No, absolutely. So we've had some very preliminary work here. We started actually with uh, urine-derived cells, but we th the results were not good. So, so that's why we moved to skin fibroblasts. So w what you said is absolutely true. It is very, very challenging to get this uh, retinal organoids phenotype well-defined uh, in this way, in this manner. We do have some experience also um, uh, we internationally with other groups that have been working with this. And so we hope to eventually get this, uh, um, get some tips from them uh, in order to, to get this done. But we are aware that it's very difficult. But you can already, of course, you can find the mutation in, in, the, in the cells that you culture. So if you could, if you could correct that, that will already be a, a milestone to see how many of those cells you can correct with this prime editing. Because prime editing, using prime editing, and we're also working a bit on that, is really forefront genetic therapy. So I think it is really great that uh, Retina supports such an initiative uh, in, a, in an excellent European group. Yeah. And I think that's probably um, one of the reasons why you were successful in um, this uh, funding application, Joao. Can I ask for the listeners at home, how much of the, the, the plan did you lay out in the application? Take me through the process of applying for the award. How much detail did you have to put into that vision um, and how much of it was, you know, uh, a good leadership, a good, a good management plan, good staff, good talent and a good idea? So... Uh, so every year uh, around November, Uretina lays out the, 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 the application criteria. And usually the, the first step is really basic. You just need to have an abstract. Um, I can't remember how many words, but it's, it's a very simple abstract where you will try to captivate the jurors um, with your project. And then the best abstracts are actually shortlisted and you are invited to submit a full proposal. And this happened somewhere in April, I believe. So then we had uh, two months, something like that, to prepare like a very detailed proposal where we specify everything that we're going to do. We detail our background, our curriculum, our uh, past publications that will influence the, the project. Uh, and then we, we submit all this to your retina. And the, the shortlisted candidates are then, um, so the proposals are reviewed by the jurors. It's, it's a large committee, so I, I, I'm not sure, about, I, th I think it's about six jurors independent that will revise all, um, all this. And, and then they will select the, the ones that they think have uh, uh, most interest. And for the first time in 2023, Uretina selected three uh, projects to be awarded. So this started in 2018, and each year, uh, Uretina always gave two awards. And for the first time this year, Uretina gave three awards with uh, some of money that uh, was more than 600,000 euros. So this is actually amazing for small labs conducting independent work because it's a way to actually pursue uh, some innovative strategies for the diagnosis and treatment of retinal diseases and in our specific case, in a medical in an ophthalmic genetics uh, project, that is uh, something that, that, like Camille said, prime editing. I mean, it's it's a top notch that you have right now. So being able to do this with the support of your retina is just amazing. 
It must have been very exciting finding out that um, uh, you were in Amsterdam that you had received this funding. Um, in terms of staffing and so on, do, what 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 does that money do, and and what freedom does that give you as a researcher with a with a vision to to really tackle this EYS uh, inherited retinal um, disease issue? So we we will have uh, two researchers that will be hired uh, for both for the two years uh, duration of the project, and so so money for human resources is, is obviously very important. Then we'll we'll have some to spend some money with regions and consumables, etc. So cell cultures, lab consumables, uh, uh, immunologic regions. So a lot of stuff that will that it's it's obviously very expensive. We'll also uh, have some money for science dissemination in meetings and publications uh, to to make our research available to to everyone. And then obviously there's the the overheads of the university. And so we we have to detail all this in the application. It's it's something that the jurors will uh, actually uh, evaluate very carefully. And the the amount that you receive in the end is based on how well you support uh, uh, your your budget. Yeah, and, and I believe you were the largest uh, of the recipients, and, and not for the first time, as you say, winning the award from Quimber. There must be something in the water there. Uh, so congratulations, <laughs> Joao. Uh, Camille, um, maybe we might talk a bit uh, about you because we might have this conversation with you, Joao, in, in three or four years' time, uh, reflecting back on what the award has done. You received the award um, previously. When was that? And uh, what has that meant for your research um, to have won the award and, and been able to, uh, to have the freedom to, to pursue the research you wanted to do? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think I was the f- in the first round, the first uh, research award round that I... Uh, I got the award, which was an incredible opportunity. And actually, what we wanted to look at was actually the other way around. So we were working ourselves on organoid and an animal model for also a hereditary retinal condition, but then uh, it was X-linked retinoschisis, which is quite a dramatic phenotype with an early onset where the, the layers of the retina are split. Vision is quite suboptimal. And... It struck me when I was seeing patients in the clinic that this might be an interesting phenotype to to think about when looking at uh, therapy, for instance, gene therapy. And we got funding to um, do the lab research in an animal model and a uh, organoid, retinal cultured organoid model. But what we didn't uh, have was the opportunity to really dive into the patient data because one of the big uh, problems I think these days is that we already testing all kinds of gene therapies in patients with retinal dystrophies, while we are not completely sure what the natural course of the disease is and who will be the best candidates to treat and mm. when. And I think that's that's quite a, um, a lack of knowledge that we have for several of these diseases. And for X-linked retinoschisis, we were able, with the funding of your retina, to appoint a PhD student, Leo Hahn, who did an amazing job because he uh, collected all the retinoschisis patients from all of the Netherlands, plus a large part of Belgium under the uh, flag of the European Reference Network for Rare Eye Diseases and the Dutch RD5000 database. So we were able to collect uh, clinical data with very long-term follow-up of 340 uh, excellent retinoschisis patients. And this was for him was a huge amount of work because taking all these data together to do all these complex statistical analysis to look at the the natural course and the variability of disease, that was a huge project. That's my idea of hell, to be honest. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. yes. That that, that sort of a task, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an an incredible task. 
And um, but it learned us a lot because what we first of all found was that um, the um, the clinical course is uh, relatively constant when you do not develop early onset uh, vitreoretinal complications such as vitreous hemorrhage and retinal attachment. So some of these young boys, because they're all boys, because it's X-linked, hmm. they can already have a very early onset severe phenotype with a very poor outcome. But if you're not in that early onset group, many people follow the same route of um, a relatively stable visual acuity that's around, uh, in decimals, it's about uh, 0.3, 0.4, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. And then with time, after the first three decades, vision goes down slowly, 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 further down. And then disease becomes atrophic. So what we found was that if you want to uh, go for intervention, you have to probably go for that in the first three decades. And we also looked at the genetic uh, variants in the RS1 gene. So we found 53 different uh, genetic variants, which was quite interesting because we could look if there is a difference with predicted severe or more mild variants mm. in terms of the clinical uh, severity. And we didn't find any correlation, actually. Mm. And then a second task that we had, this was already quite an enormous task, and we published that uh, a few, um, well, it's about one year ago in uh, the journal Ophthalmology, which was very nice. And uh, we also wanted to know if there was any indication of a benefit of uh, treatment with carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, which are often given, for instance, also in retinitis pigmentosa with patients who have cystoid macular edema, but also in retinoschisis, because there were only a few case reports uh, on that. And we are now finalizing uh, the second paper on that, where it seems that the visual benefit of such a treatment is relatively limited. Mm. There is an effect, but it is just quite limited. Yeah. And also that the response to that treatment is highly variable. But this was retrospective research. So based on the funding that we got from Uretina, we were able to acquire funding for the next stage, which is going to be a prospective study on the treatment of retinoschisis with carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that will give us more information with microperimetry, et cetera, to see if there is a functional improvement also on the microperimetry level. Joao? So it's, uh, I was aware of this research. Um, the, the part that Camille t- talked about, natural history, it's, it's actually a major deal breaker here. So we, we, we done that with ICE. So that wasn't the basis of our research. We conducted the natural history study in ICE. So in order to exactly understand how the disease behaves, and we, we actually found something that was very interesting, is that in this specific gene, you have 75% of patients who, who behave with a, a standard retinitis pigmentosa. They have a very standard phenotype. But in 25%, you have very atypical phenotypes. And these patients with atypical phenotypes, they have a better prognosis. So they will lose, they, they will keep their vision longer. They have better visual fields. They have better OCTs and their fundus autofluorescence are completely different from our uh, uh, standard uh, retinitis pigmentosa uh, phenotype. And so this is very important. So in the future, when you are developing a therapy, you know exactly for which kind of patients you should be looking at to deliver that therapy and exactly when you should deliver that therapy. And, and Camille uh, talked about that um, for X-linked retinoschisis, and it's, it's, it's actually the same for all genetic conditions. So this is very important. Also, the use of carbonic anhydrase uh, inhibitors uh, from clinical practice, I think everyone has tried treating uh, these patients with carbonic anhydrase uh, inhibitors, 
X-linked retinoschisis and also uh, cystoid macular edema in retinitis pigmentosa. And sometimes what you get is a rebound effect when they stop treating. I don't know, Camille, if you, if you, if you see that often. Yeah. Um, I, I usually see a response, but then if for some reason patient stops using the treatment, there's this rebound effect and you get very, very severe edema um, that follows. Um, and it will be good to have a, 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 a prospective trial evaluating this. And also, and we, we've discussed this, Camille, before, um, I, I am not really convinced that this kind of uh, edema in retinitis pigmentosa and schizis in X-linked retinoschisis actually has an impact in the patient's perception of their vision. And so it would be good to actually include uh, uh, patient-reported outcomes here to see if uh, this actually makes a change for them or not. Because you may be treating a retina and looking at a beautiful OCT with no cysts, but I mean, does it matter for the patient? Right. Is actually something that will benefit the patient? Uh, and so this is a nice topic to discuss as well. Yeah, I agree. And the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors can have quite some nasty side effects. So quite a sizable amount of patients stop because they have so, so many side effects feeling dizzy, feeling tired, having tingling feelings in, in the extremities. So I was wondering, Joao, uh, in your eyes cohort, there was this quite a big difference in phenotype between the, the, the atypical ones in 25% and the typical RPs. Did you see a genotype-phenotype correlation? Nope, there's nothing in eyes. So um, all the other groups who, who have studied eyes, there's no like standardized genotype-phenotype correlations like you see in Stargardt, for example. Uh, in eyes, this, this seems to be completely arbitrary. And you have lots of patients that are from the same family, brothers and sisters, and you can get an atypical phenotype in one of them and a very typical RP phenotype in the other. So yeah. there's, there's more to this that we don't know yet. Really interesting. And, and, and that comment you made about um, perception uh, is, is really key as well, because sometimes you can get bogged down in what numbers you're getting. And as you say, great scans and, and the eyes looking great. But actually, if the patient doesn't feel that they can see any better, then it, it can't really be that, that, that important at the end of the day. Well, congratulations, João. And thank you very much, uh, Camille, uh, for your um, insights. And to anyone listening, the applications are open. If you have a good idea and you have a plan, uh, do log on to uretina.org, hear about the criteria and do apply the very best of luck. But for now, Dara, Camille and Joao, thanks very much for joining us. That's it from us on this episode. If you would like to get in touch with us and give us a comment, complaint or uh, a clap on the back, you can email us podcast at uretina.org. We'll see you next time on Talking Uretina. I'm Jonathan McRae. See you soon.